He's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. It is another episode about the U.S. Supreme Court today. I'm sorry, but the landmark rulings, they just keep coming down, and we've got to cover them. Today's ruling is about the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and its ability to use its power, such as it is, to regulate what goes on in the states. It's a 6-3 ruling. The judges handed down a decision that will have far-reaching consequences for the future of the U.S. Uh, and its ability, and the EPA's ability to combat climate change. To explain what's going on, we've got Motherboard staff writer Aaron Gordon here with us. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Matt. It's an honor to be here on what is a very, very bad day. Everyone very is bad. very, yeah, everyone, nobody's having a good day. Everyone's very doom-brained. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to make anyone feel better, but we will explain what's going on, I hope. Um, want to do some table setting up here at the top, because uh, we did get some feedback on the last episode, which was about Roe. Um, that some of the the listeners that were outside of the U.S. couldn't quite follow what was going on. Uh, so, first of all, Aaron, what exactly is the Environmental Protection Agency? So, the Environmental Protection Agency is a, a federal government agency that was formed in 1970, if I if I'm remembering my facts correctly, uh, by. President Nixon. And the idea was to basically consolidate uh, various environmental protection measures that the federal government was already doing into a single office. Uh, this was obviously kind of like at the height of the environmental movement as it was first burgeoning in the 60s and 70s. People were really waking up to how much industry was polluting the world. The issue was not climate change as we know it now. That would mostly come to light in uh, the following decades. But at the time, it was very much things like uh, different kinds of pollution of our air, uh, different kinds of pollution of our water, illegal dumping, uh, you know, like old school <laughs> uh, environmental contamination, almost, if you, if you think of it that way. And the EPA was closely, the, form, the formation of the EPA was closely followed by landmark legislation like the Clean Air Act, which we're going to be talking about a lot more today, and the Clean Water Act and other kind of landmark legislation that Congress enacted that uh, really, really set the stage for the modern environmental movement. Right. And I think it's important that people understand, because we've forgotten what what this country looked like uh, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, and this was something that I wrote about this week. Uh, it's something, one of the first things that the EPA did when it was formed was send it hired like a hundred photojournalists, sent them across the country, and just said take pictures of everything. And they generated about one hundred fifty thousand images, of which like only ten percent are online. Uh, but you, you can see them on Flickr and in the National Archives uh, uh, page, um, and it's really striking. Like this was an era when lakes and rivers were catching fire. Like that's how polluted they were that bodies of water would catch fire and burn and like damage the city. Uh, one of the big cases at the time was the Cuyahoga river, which was so polluted that it, that it caught fire and caused like $50,000 worth of damage to some of some infrastructure there. Um, people would just kind of dump things everywhere. It was, it was, a, it was, it was pretty wild. It was one of those things where like, you know, people joke about swimming in the rivers around New York City now. Well, back then, like if you fell into a river, uh, you were going to the hospital <laughs> because they were so polluted. OK, so that's. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say we could talk about that forever, but I completely agree. We need to remember what things were like before and how bad they were. And like you read accounts of what urban dwellers across the world, but especially in California cities, were dealing with with smog. I mean, this was a noxious substance that would literally poison people, like make it difficult for them to breathe, burn their throat and eyes like it was essentially we were gassing ourselves essentially from the from the pollutants from our cars that uh over time we regulated out and it took a lot longer than i think it should have but uh it really you know we need to remember that cars didn't don't just pollute uh 
CO, you know, uh, carbon dioxide. They also pr- used to uh, pollute all these other noxious sob- substances that formed smog. And only until catalytic converters became federally mandated in all cars in the 1970s did that problem start to get better. Uh, so th- this was like a case where federal regulation, uh, really spearheaded by the EPA in a lot of r- ways, um, solved an extremely real and very dangerous problem that this country had. And uh, yeah, so that's where we're at. Matt, are you still with me? Oh, yeah, I'm still here. I All right, I'm, see- I'm seeing a double of me. So I was like, where'd Matt go? Yeah, go yeah, yeah, no, uh, I'm, here. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely here. Uh, yeah, I'm going to try to pull up. Yeah, here we go. Here are some of the images. Uh, This one, I think, is always really striking to me, is these children playing under a smokestack. Now, that smokestack is pumping out arsenic and lead into the atmosphere, uh, just like right under kids playing. Uh, I also really enjoy, this is the the Watergate complex in D.C. Well, maybe enjoy is the wrong word, but uh, this is the Watergate complex in D.C. As you can see, this this is just raw sewage that's just in the water. Uh, being pumped out there. Um, all right. So to pull it back to kind of what happened today to maybe explain to our European or our, our listeners outside of the United States, what is the Supreme court and why do they have anything to say about the EPA? Like how does the system work in America? Yeah, I'll try and make this super quick. Basically the Supreme court is, uh, a legislative, bo- or I'm sorry, uh, a judicial body. Obviously, it's not legislative. A judici- ju- judicial body that our founders set up as part of the c- Constitution uh, to essentially resolve disputes between states, or between states and the federal government, or potentially between private parties and states, or private parties and the federal government when there were when there are constitutional interpretive issues. And basically, the way it happens is there's a lawsuit. It gets heard in a lower federal court. Then if someone doesn't like the ruling, they appeal. And then it gets heard by an appeals court. And then if they don't like the ruling there, it get, then they basically ask the Supreme Court, will you please consider this issue? And the Supreme Court has a choice, obviously, of whether to say yes or say no. And in this case, uh, West Virginia versus EPA, they decided to say yes. All right. Now, tell us about... West Virginia versus EPA and what the ruling was that was made today. Okay. So first of all, uh, I'm going to make one thing very clear, which is one of the most controversial aspects of this ruling is that the Supreme court agreed to hear it at all. And the reason, and, and in the environmental law experts I've talked to for this, uh, you know, on background, as I was anticipating the ruling universally, they were like, we have no idea why the Supreme court heard this case except with the explicit intent of gutting the environmental or the EPA's statutory powers and the regulatory state in general. Because the actual like issue at hand in this case, um, well, there kind of is no issue. Uh, so basically, the lawsuit started in uh, 2015 during the Obama administration when West Virginia, a bunch of other red states, and I think a couple of coal companies sued to stop what is called what the Obama administration said was the clean power plan. And it was basically a, it wasn't even mandating that anybody did anything. It was except mandating that states come up with a plan to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from electricity generation. And basically the plan that they called for, for states to, you know, put together had to do with three different types of emission reduction. One is things that the power plant itself could do to be more efficient. Uh, you know, these would be things like improving the efficiency at which you burn coal or putting in carbon capture at the plant. And these are very limited measures and they won't have much effect. The second thing was to replace dirty fossil fuels with cleaner fossil fuels such as they exist, like, say, shutting down coal plants and replacing them with natural gas plants, which a lot of people say, uh, you know, re- uh, reduces the amount of greenhouse gas emissions. And the third thing is obviously replace uh, fossil fuel burning with renewable energy. And so what the court case – and the reason why this was so bizarre to go before the Supreme Court is lower courts stopped the plan from going into effect while it was litigated. Obviously, 
Obama was not president for much longer. Trump took office in, you know, January 2017. The plan went nowhere. Uh, The suit made its way through the courts, but the Trump administration was not going to revive it. During this time, the private markets, the market system, hit the benchmarks that the Clean Power Plan identified just because renewables became so much cheaper during that time. Um, And some other reasons, but that's the primary reason. So as this case was winding through the courts, the rule over which it was arguing was essentially moot because the the power of the federal government that was essentially in dispute, uh, it, it, the, the, what it was supposed to exercise that power to accomplish was accomplished just through private markets on its own. And then the third reason why it's absurd is that it, the case was heard is because the Biden administration said they, they also aren't going to revive the clean power plan for the aforementioned reasons. There's no reason to. So essentially, the Supreme Court agreed to hear a rule that was never in place, was never enacted, and doesn't exist anymore because the rule has already been accomplished, essentially. Um, but they took the case anyways. And I'm going to pause there and see if you have any questions or follow ups. Otherwise, I can just launch into the decision itself. Um, my only, this may be a Supreme court nerd question that you don't have an answer for. Uh, but how, like, what is the process by which the court decides what cases they're going to hear and which ones they aren't? So I know that like Sotomayor released a list, I think today or yesterday of like, these are the cases I wanted to look at and we're not going to, and it sucks. Uh, do you, do you, do you happen to know? Yeah, they have they have a vote essentially, and if enough of them want to do it, then they hear it. Is my understanding, but I'm also not like a Supreme Court expert, and I don't claim any expertise on that particular question. But I'm pretty sure there's some like process like that, and uh, obviously, if one if one you know if a group of justices really want to hear it, um, they can kind of like do some horse trading in the background, you know, you really want to hear this case. I really want to hear this case. So let, you know, we'll both vote for it, that type of thing. So, uh, the thing with the clean and, and, and the, this background on like the fact that the rule doesn't actually exist and wouldn't have done anything that the market didn't do already is really important, not just for this kind of esoteric reason of whether the court should have heard it, but for a much more important legal reason that the court then essentially ruled on, which is, uh, The question at the heart of the case is whether these regulatory agencies can issue rules that aren't like super spelled out in the law that they cite, but can is basically implied by what the law is supposed to do, even if the rule is very important. And basically, the conservatives on the court think that if something is really important, then the law and Congress should have to very explicitly say we authorize the agency to regulate this thing in the following ways. And the big dispute here is that the Clean Air Act, which was passed again in 1970, does not, it it talks a ton about pollution and it talks a ton about obviously clean air, but it doesn't explicitly talk about greenhouse gas emissions because that wasn't really on most people's radar in 1970. And so what the justices ruled was that this is an important decision that, uh, the regulatory agencies were making on their own that would have this big impact. And that's not something that we should allow because that's really Congress's decision uh, and Congress's jurisdiction to decide these important issues. But of course, the, the, the thing that baffles everyone I've spoken to about this case is this is very obviously not an important decision in terms of the consequences it would have to the very entities that were suing to stop it. And we know this because the private market did it on its own, there, that the regulatory state essentially ended up being not necessary to undergo this change. So therefore, how significant or an important of decision was it? And what the court essentially said was, we're not going to even touch that. It's obviously an important decision. And so therefore, we're going to say that uh, that they, they shouldn't have been able to do it because important decisions should be should be within the realm of Congress. And there, there are a lot of other legal questions there. That's obviously a huge can of worms. But this is what, at least from my perspective, kind of like stunned environmental lawyers the most was like the trying to have it both ways of whether or not this is an important decision or not. Right. It's, it's well, I would assume that 
by the very nature of the fact that the court is ruling on it, that makes it an important decision, right? At least in the court's eyes. Or else why would they even be talking about it? Right. Well, this is where, you know, I think a lot of people, and, and, and I'm including environmental law experts in this, in this category, think that the court essentially used this case as a pretext to gut the regulatory state. And that this really has nothing to do with the particulars of this particular case. And because one thing the court could have very reasonably done, and I mean, this is what this was the scenario that pretty much everyone told me was this is what they should do, but they're not going to do it, was to say we were wrong to take this case. Uh, It turns out that it's not, you know, the details of the case are not what we thought they were, and we're not going to rule on it. And what that would have left the door open to was basically to imply or tell the federal government or the EPA, come up with a new rule, and then we'll hear a case on that new rule, whatever it is, you know, because like the particulars of the rule are probably important about how important the rule is. Um, So that was what a lot of people kind of hoped the court would do. Obviously, that would just kick the can down the road in some ways. But it also, I think, in a lot of ways would have been more intellectually honest and at least dropped the uh, pretext or at least at least made it less obvious that the court is doing this just because they want to and not because there's a significant problem that they're trying to fix, if that makes sense. So it sure sounds like uh, these may be dun 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 activist judges, something that we've heard the right wing talk about quite a bit in this country and have been very upset by. Um, yeah, I mean, activist judges is kind of like one of those terms like revisionist history that people only use when they don't like what the other person is talking about and not because they actually have a problem with what's being said or done. Um, you know, it's, there's, I mean, we could, we could have a whole podcast alone on the hypocrisies of this court and the kind of conservative legal arguments to which they're underpinning their, uh, their rulings and how that accords with notions of democracy, both from the founders and modern interpretations, and how they say they're really trying to like reinforce democracy by kicking so many issues back to Congress. And meanwhile, they're doing it as like just six judges sitting in a room who are not elected by anybody. Um, so yeah, it's you know it's a it's a it's a whole can of worms and a complicated issue, and it can really get the blood boiling. That's for sure. Uh, I can feel your blood boiling from here. Uh, let us take a break, though, cyber listeners. If you are listening to the podcast, we will be right back after a few words from our sponsor. If you are watching on the Twitch stream, we will be back immediately after a brief silence. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, cyber listeners, thank you for sticking around. We are talking to Aaron Gordon about uh, the EPA and the recent Supreme Court ruling. Um, so I want you to make a connection for me uh, in something, one of the previous answers. You said that it sure looks like, and a lot of people are interpreting this decision as uh, the Supreme Court judges kind of making an attempt to gut the regulatory state. Uh, make that connection for me. Sure. So like all court rulings, this is both about something very narrow and about something very broad. And when I say all court rulings, I mean all Supreme Court rulings. Um, the narrow issue is obviously like this specific clean power plan and whether the Clean Air Act uh, gives EPA permission to uh, regulate greenhouse gases. And the judges basically said no, because uh, I'll pull up the quote from Chief Justice John Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion here. Capping carbon dioxide emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the use of coal to generate electricity may be a sensible, quote, solution to the crisis of the day, end quote. But it is not plausible that Congress gave EPA the authority to adopt on its own such a regulatory scheme. 
A decision of such magnitude and consequence rests with Congress itself, or an agency acting pursuant to a clear delegation from that representative body. So what he's saying there is, Congress has to tell the EPA to do this, otherwise they can't do it. And they've and and you know, like all things about what constitutes a uh, important decision or a, uh, you know a, a decision of such magnitude and consequence, as uh, Roberts put it, um, that's up for a lot of interpretation. And what a lot of people are worried about, and I think justifiably so, is that this opens the door for anyone who doesn't like any regulatory rule enacted by any of the host of, you know, of the, of the federal agencies that regulate things, um, you know, whether it's the U.S., whether it's Department of Agriculture, whether it's, you know, the, the Department of the Interior, the Forest Service. I mean, you could just go on and on about, you know, the Bureau of Land Reclamation. The, there are, so, there are uh, dozens of them. Any rule they've enacted that you can't point to a line in a legislation from Congress in which it says, regulate that thing seems to now be open for lawsuits. And that's a huge, huge change in the way our federal government works. Because in case you haven't noticed, Congress doesn't work that well. Like, they don't pass many good laws. They don't pass many laws at all. A lot of the laws they pass are, like, really bullshit laws, like about renaming post offices and shit. Like, on important issues, Congress can't agree on almost anything. And in the last... uh, 20 to 30 years, but I would say generally speaking, the last 50 years, Congress has punted almost every important question and issue to other branches of government. And in some cases, that's, yes, the Supreme Court, as they're exhibiting this week. Um, But in other cases, it's to, and I would say in most cases, it's to the regulatory agencies within the executive branch that the president oversees. So then the president comes in and, you know, says, I want, uh, the Department of Homeland Security to start rounding up immigrants, as you know, like Trump did, for example, and then the, they, you know, they they probably go through the rulemaking process of trying to change the rules so that they can start doing that. And Biden's done a number of things using the rulemaking process as well because it's the most lo- the easiest and the path of least resistance to actually enacting change in this country. And what the Supreme Court just did was assertively closing that off. For the for the context of regulating greenhouse gas emissions, um, but also probably closed it off for a host of other, uh, you know, for basically everything else that Congress hasn't specifically said regulate this, and that's a lot of things. And now people are very worried that uh, in a lot of ways we're going to go back to kind of the the world that we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, you know, the pre EPA world, because a lot of what they do is not like explicitly spelled out by Congress because they didn't think they had to. So kind of what you're, what you're laying out um, and what I think we may be looking at in the near future is we've been in this world, uh, I would say since the civil war and then accelerated after the new deal where um, federal government was getting a lot of power. State government was uh, seeding maybe the wrong word, but was, was losing that power to the federal government um, and in tandem with that, I would think probably since like Vietnam, the executive branch gained a lot of power um, and Congress itself was ceding a lot of that power to the executive branch. I especially look at the way like we go about conducting wars in this country, um, you know, sometimes we call them police actions, uh, but it's essentially war by another name. But essentially Congress is supposed to that's supposed to be Congress's job. They've ceded that to the executive branch. They did that a long time ago uh, with LBJ. Um, so we're seeing maybe now the pendulum swing back where states are grabbing power back. Uh, Supreme Court is helping them and the executive branch is losing power. Isn't, is there perhaps some ways that that is a good thing? Uh, that's a good question. And obviously the biggest determinant of one's answer to that is what their values are and what they consider good or bad. You know, I think like there are obviously millions of very happy anti-abortion activists or even just people who who think abortion should be illegal in this in this country this week, for example. They would have a very different answer than I do. Specific to this uh to this case though and like the regulatory 
question. Um, I think if we had a functional legislative branch, the answer could very well be yes. There are many positives here. Um, It could be a good thing. There could be positive consequences from it. But what the court's ruling fundamentally implies or suggests is that the legislative branch is functional, that Congress can resolve issues, uh, hold logical debates, come to sensible solutions about the main problems of the day, and generally reflect the will of the people. Uh, that's not we. That's not our country. That's just fundamentally not the country we live in. Our our congression, our legislative branch, is marred in dysfunction. It can't agree on any on what issues are important, much less how to resolve them. It's bitterly divided on almost every issue. Uh, ra- uh, uh, almost no one votes across the aisle anymore. It's complete factional war essentially uh everything is based on winning or losing for your particular side and not on solving problems that this country has and i come back here to like the clean air act for example um a bipartisan piece of legislation that passed and i mean that in the purest sense like uh parties political parties were different than like the 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 republican and democratic parties didn't mean then what they mean now in terms of what their members believed uh, they were more mixed in terms of the actual ideologies of the members of them. Uh, but even still, it was a bipartisan piece of legislation where people from kind of all areas of the political spectrum, regardless of their party or ideological affiliation, came together for the most part and voted for it. President Nixon, a Republican, signed it into law um, because everyone agreed that, you know, like the the. The time, you know, the, as we were talking about earlier, like shit had just gotten way too bad and c- clean air is important. Clean water, as they would do the Clean Water Act, is important. It's a thing that everyone can agree on. And there was just like this kind of common sense understanding that that was a thing. I mean, I, I uh, also am working on a story and this predates this ruling. I've been working on it for a couple of weeks about the uh, National Environmental Policy Act called NEPA, which was also passed in 1970. And this was essentially a rule that said the federal government, before they did anything, like any kind of project, infrastructure project, or or built on something, had to actually look at what the environmental consequences of that would be before they just built it. And again, this was like bipartisan peace flesh. People were like, that's a good idea. We should have some idea of what we're going to do to the environment before we do it. Uh, I don't see anything like that in... Congress today. I don't see anyone coming across the aisle in any kind of numbers to pass significant legislation. I mean, the closest thing would probably be uh, the gun reform laws that were passed somewhat recently. I think it was like last week uh, that were overshadowed by the Dobbs ruling. But even that's, you know, it's a it's a it's a win a little bit for gun legisl- for for gun uh, control proponents. But it's a not very significant piece of legislation. It includes some like on the margin cases. Closing the boyfriend boyfriend loophole is good. But that's like something that would not have taken years or decades under previous congressional makeups. Because that's just like it's really just a super duper common sense piece of legislation. So I think that's like my big takeaway right now is because of the political polarization and the almost team sportification of politics in in the country these days where it's all about winning and it's all about owning the libs or or you know defeating trump and all these like slogans about beating the other side and not really about the issues at play and how to get to common sense solutions on them uh i think what congress has essentially done is is meant that we can't we can't do anything we can't change anything and paralyze the federal government so i wanted to ask so when these rulings come down, this is this is going back a few steps, but I, I wanted to get this question in here. So when these ruling comes rulings come down, there's always a majority de- majority decision and a dissent. Mm-hmm. Was there anything in the dissent, the three judges that didn't want this? Was there anything that stood out to you there? Yeah, there was one line by uh, Alana Kagan that stood out to me, or Kagan, uh, because 
Well, I'll, I'll just I'll just read the quote. I mean, I think it's a I think it speaks for itself. She essentially said that the court has no knowledge or expertise on climate change. It's making this ruling that's obviously going to have these huge impacts for our ability to fight climate change. And she questioned whether the court should be doing that. She said, quote, whatever else this court may know about, it does not have a clue about how to address climate change. The court appoints itself, instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision maker on climate policy. I cannot think of many things more frightening. End quote. It leads us into, a, into my next question. Um, everyone's feeling pretty doom-brained. I know at the office right now, uh, I know my friends and I are also kind of feeling this way, feeling a little hopeless uh, between the Dobbs decision this decision, uh, I believe they're also going to, they've taken up a case for the next term where they're going to look at uh, voting regulation and the federal ability to, to handle that um, with possibly some horrifying consequences down the line. How, how are you handling it? Like the doom um, of it all. Yeah. I mean, my first thing is not spending any time on Twitter. Uh, that doesn't help the doom brain at all. Uh, I think I think we all know how bad things are. I don't think we need to immerse ourselves in the the kind of like rhetoric around it. I don't think that's going to help anything or especially not help any of our mental health. Uh, so the one thing I try and do is just get away from it as much as possible. I've realized that there's, um, especially for those of us who have grown up online and spend a lot of time online, uh, it often feels like almost a duty or responsibility to like learn about how bad things are or get as broad of a, you know, just, just go deep in the doom brain and the doom scrolling. Um, but that's not, you don't really need to, once you know how bad things are, you don't need to, uh, overexpose yourself to it is kind of like my, my philosophy there. So I try and, you know, log off as much as I can, not spend as much time on social media as I can. Um, and I also remind myself that quite literally since the founding of this country, and I'm talking like in the, in the immediate years after the Treaty of Paris that ended the American War for Independence, Americans have been convinced that the country is falling apart, that this, this uh, republic is not meant to last, that it's a mechanism for evil and suffering or tyranny and oppression. And what that means to everyone is everyone making these cases is, has been different over time. They've been on all the sides of the political spectrum making these arguments. Every generation of Americans, without exception, have lived in a time where the country thought it was fundamentally untenable and falling apart. Uh, and yet, through all of that, Many people have managed to live relatively fruitful, happy, meaningful lives for reasons other than what was going on in the country at the time or what they thought was happening. Um, so I just remind myself of that, that uh, there's never like there's never been a good time to live in the United States of America. Um, we're fed a lot of essential. I mean, I I. I don't hesitate to call it this. We're fed a lot of propaganda about the history of this country and about what living in it has really been like. There has never been a good time to live in America. I feel that strongly, but I also feel that people have managed to live happy and successful and fruitful and loving and meaningful lives while living in this incredibly flawed country that we have. So... I think that's kind of my my like pep talk to myself. I don't know if it's inspired any listeners. Um but you know, if I think if if we try and tie our personal happiness to the state of this country, we'll always be eternally disappointed. Um so the best thing to do is maybe to try and separate those two things as much as possible. Uh there are people in chat that are agreeing with you and saying that you have a good perspective. My my go-to whenever I think about this stuff, um, especially if I start to get really frightened of 
like political violence in the country is to remember that political violence used to be so much worse in the 1970s. Uh, there were something like in the, especially the early part of the seventies, there was something like 2000 political bombings a year. Um, there was even, yeah, there was even, uh, like a case of like a 1975 wall street bombing where, uh, it was at a movie theater. The bomb exploded in the middle of a movie. No one was injured. People evacuated. And then the citizens of New York city were so used to bombs exploding on a daily basis. They're like, well, when are you going to let us back in so we can finish our movie? Um, like they, that we, we've, we've been in a lot of, in a lot of ways in much worse places before. Um, that doesn't change how broken and weird things feel now, but I feel like getting that perspective out sometimes helps me. Um, and so does voting. Am I right, Aaron? See that segue? That was nice. Good one. Yeah. So how do we, how do we get out of this? Can we vote our way out of it? Uh, I don't think so. My, my, my argument is not, uh, so I wrote Matt's, Matt's alluding to, I wrote another article today. Uh, the headline is Democrats are not going to vote harder primary show. Um, and basically I looked at voter turnout in the primaries so far this, uh, spring and summer, which we've pretty much known for, you know, at the time that all the primaries were held that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned because of the leaked document. Um, obviously the primaries held this week. We know it already had been and voter t- and, and a lot of politicians are, you know, like major Democrat politicians, Joe Biden, Charles Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, uh, you know, are, are like telling Democrats like, oh, you're angry at the Supreme Court? Go vote, you know, is like their their kind of line. And uh, people are really mad at this line. Like, and there's a meme uh, on, you know, that I've been made aware of on social media mostly. It's like called vote harder is like the slogan, you know, like that all these politicians just keep telling Democrats to vote harder. And um, that it's it's like a fundamental misdiagnosis of what the problem is. It's essentially trying to solve the problem of a political party and an ideology that's pushing America to be more and more anti-democratic with more democracy. And uh, it's telling people who live in places where their votes fundamentally don't matter in almost all cases um, that if they just vote, that will somehow solve the problem. And, uh, it's, it's just like, it, it, it doesn't pass the smell test. Uh, if you would know anything about how the state of affairs have come in order from extreme gerrymandering to the courts, you know, agreeing with this gerrymandering to the Mitch McConnell shenanigans that led to the Supreme court being so, uh, heavily conservative. Um, none of these things have to do with how many votes people got, um, you know, to, to get in the positions that they got in to do it. And so, uh, it's just kind of ridiculous to tell people who are unhappy about six, you know, uh, uh, just like random, essentially random people, uh, you know, uh, sitting in some building in DC telling them, uh, what, you know, how their lives are going to go in a lot of cases, or, you know, how the government can address the major issues of the day, uh, telling them the voting will somehow solve that, uh, just, it, it just isn't true. And of course, like the ultimate, you know, irony and frustration there is like six random people in D.C. telling you how your life is going to go or what's going to happen is like the epitome of what a lot of conservatives would criticize liberals for wanting. And yet that's kind of like exactly how liberals view the situation right now. Um, So it's yeah, everything is just kind of all topsy turvy. And uh, the one thing that makes a lot of people angry is telling them that just voting is going to solve the problem when we've been voting pretty diligently for the last couple of decades, we've elected a bunch of Democrats. You know, it's been tenuous, but we've controlled the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and they haven't accomplished shit. And meanwhile, uh, in the last week, uh, I would argue that the Supreme Court has accomplished more for the political right than Democrats in any branch across, you know, all the country have accomplished over the last half century. So uh, I would also yeah, argue that's... that those were, that that was the fruition of, very long-term projects, right? Yeah, like, like actual planning and competent. I mean, like, obviously it was to, you know, for ends that we don't agree with, but it was competent. It had a long-term vision. It showed real understanding of how to exercise political power. 
um, and other kind of just uh, and other just basic competency questions that I think a lot of Democrats are feeling like we don't have from our party. Um, And I will say that, like, it's easier for Republicans because they're so ideologically linked and coherent that they don't have to build any type of, like, coalition within the party when they all pretty much agree on most of the things that they want, and they're a pretty unified voting bloc, whereas Democrats are much more of a of a coalition of disparate interests from the Joe Mansions to the AOCs uh, and, you know, even more extreme viewpoints than the AOCs, I would say. Um, you know, that's a, that's a pretty wide coalition you have to try and court. And so that is that does make things more difficult. But even still, there are things Democrats can do to just show some like fight and spirit in them that might galvanize some voters that they just aren't doing. And that's how you end up with like 14 percent of registered voters voting in the New York primaries this week. Yeah, I think that's part of one of the things that frustrates me is that even if they knew whatever effort they were going to do, whatever executive order or whatever measure they were going to try to take was going to fail. I think people would appreciate the effort (laughs) and would maybe, maybe it would up voter turnout if they were to try anything, anything. Yeah. It just, sorry, go ahead. Did you vote in the primary? I did, but because there's a, there are very arcane reasons within the Brooklyn Democratic Party that like there are these non there are these non paying back office positions essentially that determine like which judges end up on the ballot for local judgeships and other like Officer extremely arcane and measures and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Other very arcane uh uh like Democratic Party rulings, they're nevertheless, like, important if you care about things like criminal justice reform and that type of shit on the local level. And there's an upstart um, or a grassroots uh, movement within the Brooklyn Democratic Party to try and upend the machine that really controls these things. And so I was very motivated to vote for those local reasons. But for, you know, like, for the governorship, I mean, our choices were between Kathy Hochul, who... uh, you know, it's just like a classic Democrat, middle of the road Democrat. And, you know, I, I'm particularly livid that she gave the Buffalo Bills $1.5 billion in taxpayer funds to build a new stadium while the city is uh, slashing the public schools budget by $250 million and just like other general uh other general uh, discordance here and what I think are really fucked up priorities within the New York Democratic Party. And so it was basically between her and then one other guy who didn't have a shot. And he was like, I, uh, two other guys who didn't have a shot, I should say. Uh, and so I ran, I, I voted, but it felt shitty. Like, I mean, it really felt shitty to vote yeah, uh, on Tuesday. And uh, it did so because the outcome was essentially predetermined. Uh, there was no real competitive race. I didn't feel like I had any actual options for the positions that made the most that mattered the most to the state's operation. And while I was, you know, casting my ballot for essentially a predetermined outcome, these six unelected judges or, you know, if you want to say nine unelected judges um, in D.C. were making these incredibly important decisions that affect not just me and the people I love, but you know the future of this planet in such profound ways, and there was and there's just like literally zero I had to do with whether these people had that power or not. Literally zero, like any of us had to do with whether these people had that power or not. And it just made me feel very shitty about who actually decides what happens, like who actually makes the major decisions in this country these days. I. Worry, maybe worry is the wrong word. I think of the words of my least favorite president, Andrew Jackson, mm-hmm. um, when I think about the Supreme Court recently, because uh, he's a guy that fought the Supreme Court and had rulings come down that he didn't like. For the worst possible reasons. For the yes. worst possible <laughs> reasons. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> what did he say? Well, they can pass the ruling, but let them enforce it. Yeah, he said Justice Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. And uh, 
this was famously said about a case in which uh, I might get the specific details wrong, but essentially it was about whether a treaty for with Native Americans in Georgia had to be honored because um, the state essentially made a treaty with the Cherokee to give them a ton of land in Georgia in exchange for vacating other land. And then the state basically wanted to renege on that treaty, if I recall correctly, and kick the Cherokee out. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. Like the treaty is the treaty. It's a contract. You can't you can't just throw it out. And uh, what Jackson did was said, well, that's a nice ruling you have there, uh, but I'm the one who commands the army, and he just sent troops down to Georgia to kick the Cherokee out. If I, were, I think I'm pretty sure that's that's what happened. Uh, <laughs> what begins the Trail of Tears? Yeah. Yes. So uh, it's an abhorrent thing to cite, but I think if we've learned anything over the last twenty, thirty years, it's that Democrats really have a lot to learn from Republicans in terms of how to get shit done. And how to exercise, I think it, not even how to just how to get shit done, but I think just how to exercise power and how to think right. about power. Yes, Full stop. that's a better way to put it. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, I think one of the reasons that the Supreme Court feels so emboldened to make this series of absolutely massive decisions is because no one important in the Democratic Party has yet to question their legitimacy, has yet to say Maybe we're not going to listen to you if you keep doing this shit. You know, like one of the things that uh, keeps happening is Democrats vote Democratic or voters keep putting Democrats in power. um, And that's a type that's it. That's an actual exercise of power. And I think what a lot of Democrats might like to see is the Democrats exercise that power more effectively. And one way it could do so is. At this juncture, when we know a huge section, a huge portion of the country does not agree with the rulings that the Supreme Court just made, is to essentially say, boy, the Supreme Court really needs to be careful here because a lot of my constituents are telling us to ignore them. You know, just start putting that out there that like the Supreme Court's power is in how much people believe in it. And if people stop believing in the Supreme Court as a legitimate authority, uh, then its authority goes away. And I'm not saying that, you know, Democrats should be, uh, you know, pulling a full Andrew Jackson here. But I think starting to inject that into the conversation might go a long way in preventing such extreme rulings in the future. It won't change the Supreme Court's mind on anything. It's not going to suddenly make, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas a, 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 a flaming liberal, as he might say. Um, but, you know, it will perhaps push them a bit more to the Roberts end of the conservative spectrum, which is someone who is fundamentally afraid of rocking the boat and uh, changing things too much. And I think that would be a healthy attitude for the Supreme Court to have. And they're only going to have that if someone intimates that there are limits to their power. And this is, again, what happened in the New Deal era, right? Uh, the, yep. he, uh, uh, FDR was facing a pretty conservative Supreme court and he, in order to rein them in, he didn't do it, but he threatened to pack the court, right? Something we hear about now. And this is, you know, a, a shortened abbreviated version of history, but got them to kind of back off and calm down essentially. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the court packing case of the of the FDR administration is like super fascinating. I highly encourage anyone um, listening who's interested to learn more to go back into that or, you know, to, to research it. Um, it was very, very complicated political time. Uh, one thing I will say is that FDR had a massive Democratic Party majority to work from. And so his threat of court packing was much more legitimate than I think Biden's would be if he came out and said he was in favor of doing it. I think so. Um, so that's one That's one thing to keep in mind. Like, I hear there are some Democrat politicians kind of, like, inkling that they're, like, open to considering it now, but it's like it's an empty threat at this point. Like, they're never going to get the majority they need to actually expand the Supreme Court and name a bunch of new justices. Um, but what they can do is ignore it. You know, ignore the court or at least say, like, we're going to we're going to start thinking about whether we need to listen to you anymore. Um, That's something that they can do and would be a fairly legitimate threat because they don't need super majorities in in Congress to do it. Um, 
but yeah, the the other thing about the FDR case is, you know, he he suffered a lot of political consequences for that court packing case. A lot of yeah. Americans did not agree with him. And if not for World War II, his reputation would be very different in this country because of the court packing thing. He was basically accused of trying to become a dictator of the country at a time when, you know, fascism was the dominant political ideology around the world, essentially. Um, and so that was like a, it was a huge controversy, super fascinating time in history, if, if you want to learn more about it. But there were significant differences um, to now, and the dynamics are quite different. Uh, but the one thing to learn from it, I think, is, you know, even before it was obvious the court packing effort would fail, the Supreme Court essentially, the Supreme Court was really thinking about striking down the Social Security Act. You know, Social Security, we, th- that thing you know about, you pay taxes into and then you get you get money for when you're old, you know, like it was a huge deal in the Depression when old people basically had no income if they couldn't work or disabled people had no income if they couldn't work, you know, and Social Security was a massively popular program. The Supreme Court very much wanted to rule it unconstitutional. And I think a lot of historians believe they would have if FDR didn't scare the shit out of them by showing that he was willing to exercise nearly all of his political power and all of his uh, political capital to uh, make sure that didn't happen. So I think those are, those are the kinds of lessons that we can, we can learn from that time that like, you know, uh, (laughs) I, I, I just thought in my head, like Democrats need to actually fucking care about shit, you know, like, like they really have to be willing to, uh, stake their political futures on tentpole principles and specific things that they think are just super important. And right now I see a democratic party that's much more concerned about kind of like surviving the electoral churn than about like actually passing legislation or, you know, doing things that, uh, they can be that like, they can be proud of long-term and that, and that democratic voters will at least appreciate them doing as you put it. Yeah. I think so. I think that's a good note to end on. We need to run. Aaron Gordon, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber Inventing Your Spleen. Do you feel any better? No, I feel worse. But thanks for letting me rant. Yeah, (laughs) thanks for letting me rant. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Audience, I hope some of you feel better or at least thought the conversation was interesting. Uh, If you like the show and you're listening on the podcast, follow us on Twitch. We're at twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV. And you follow us there. You'll get notified when we go live. We go live about twice a week. We record the shows live. If uh, you're already watching on Twitch and you missed the first half, this will be up as a podcast here shortly. Um, It will be available as a video stream soon. Thank you all so much uh, for coming in. Great audience today. Love you all. Stay safe out there. Bye. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.